I'm Kelly O'Hara. You're listening to Pod Clubhouse. Pod Clubhouse. I won't say I feel no pity, because I do. But you have not only tried to get the better of me, you and Mrs. Morris have snubbed and belittled my wife. How could I allow that to go unpunished? I don't suggest that you men committed every crime that I'm avenging here, but to employ a modern phrase, I'm afraid you must face the music. Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode three of the Gilded Age, which was called Face the Music. This one we actually have confirmation on the name, so I was very happy to be able to say Face the Music this week. It was written by Lord Julian Fellows, and it was directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield. This is Ms. Whitfield's first time directing the Gilded Age, but she's going to be around for the next several episodes. I think she may even be directing five of the next episodes. So. Wow. So she's definitely going to have her say in the the direction of the show. That's fantastic. I really enjoyed the visuals in this one. So I'm excited to have her around for for more than one year. So that'll be exciting. Just a reminder to you guys that we assume you've already watched the episode. We don't go step by step in our recap. So please just feel free to put pause and head on over and go watch the show and then come on back and listen to our discussion. If you'd like to continue to discuss after you've listened to the podcast, please join us over on the Facebook group, the Gilded Age Fan Group, parentheses HBO series, where we have lots of lively conversation each episode and we do our very best to keep spoilers hidden away from everyone so that if you come scrolling, you won't just accidentally get spoiled. So come on over and discuss things with us and we'd love to hear your opinion and your feedback. I also tend to spend a lot of the week in between episodes adding little extra historical knowledge that gets mentioned in the show that maybe we don't have time to talk about or expand upon here. Last week, I did a whole little piece about the Bethesda Fountain, which came up in uh, the second episode, the infirmary for poor women and you know and orphans. <laughs> right. uh, I did a whole little piece. Uh, yeah. So, you know, some good, good extra bonus historical material that's more visual over in the Facebook group. So definitely. That's what I was going to say. I super love the photographs that you've been putting up because I think, you know, we're a podcast and it's difficult for us to describe to you what exactly we're seeing, especially the historical notes. So I'm really happy that you're adding those pictures. So when we do these a little behind the scenes, when we do these episodes, I put together just a dedicated page of historical references. Uh, and this one is literally a full page uh, from this episode of historical information, which I think Caroline would jump through the microphone and strangle me if I was to <laughs> recite uh, verbatim here on the podcast. So you'll get a little taste of the show, a little bit of ankle, uh, a little a little Victorian ankle, and then take it right back uh, oh in my this goodness. episode. And then That's head over to Facebook awfully group. strong, you. I don't think I would jump through the microphone, but we do try to keep this concise for you guys so that you can listen to it on your commute or what have you. And, you know, it's it's nice encapsulated. Uh, let's start with some preliminaries before we get into the action of this episode. Well, first, let's talk about the episode in general. I got to tell you, Caroline, this episode, for an episode three, this felt very much more like a mid-season cliffhanger kind of episode. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It picked up a lot of steam. I mean, I very much felt like you could feel like the writers and the directors and the actors were all kind of like pressing down on the accelerator. Like you could feel like the engine revving and going faster and faster. You're right. It really makes me look forward to the fifth episode because it's like, my goodness, if this is happening in the third, what in the world is coming so we discussed the bizarre last episode, and I had given you a little side eye that despite the fact that the $2,000 they had raised was record-breaking, I was pretty concerned that there was going to be some ruffled feathers and some, you know, some pretty angry women about the fact that their event was shut down. What did you think about this outcome with Anne and Aurora? I mean, the fact to hear them say, and Agnes opine, that, you know, they were the laughing stock of it, it really brings home, I think, to bear last week's episode title this money isn't everything right the when you think mm-hmm. about how Anne used it right ada used money isn't everything in a lovey sense right that seek out love for love's sake and don't make marriage just for money's sake because money isn't everything but Anne morris very pointedly in rejecting bertha russell's money said money isn't everything and we're, we're seeing that here two thousand dollars on paper it's a success but money isn't everything the social fallout of mm-hmm. Anne and aurora is is going to be something that gets with and why bring that up here because i think it definitely fuels the energy that is pumping through this episode tonight i have to ask you did it surprise you though because you know you you were a little bit on you know uncertain when i was giving you my knit-a-thon example and i was saying that there's something to having actual events to attend that this is going to really make people angry that it's messing up the physical event they were supposed to go to were you surprised then that this actually did create more of a problem well, no, because the people, I think the, I, well, to, not to adopt my Marian voice, but I'd say that the people who were offended were not the people who were going to benefit from that $2,000. The people that were offended were the people that George doesn't care about offending. And, you know, Ann Morris, Aurora Fane, and any of their sycophants. I don't think Miss Astor, she got the afternoon off. I don't think she was particularly upset or perturbed about it. That's one of the things, actually, I, I wanted to pick up and... I, I, I talked about this a little bit in the beginning of last week's episode when Patrick Morris says to his wife, what would you say to her about having the Russells over for dinner? Well, Mrs. Astor, you know, knows how the world works. She understands business. She's essentially saying she's very, she's more pragmatic than you give her credit for. I feel like we saw that again in this episode. You know, there's that, sec- there's that scene at the Red Cross plotting lunch where they're talking about how they have to do fundraising, but they also may have to do battle with politicians in order to get the Red Cross chartered in here in the United States. And she says, sometimes you have to go to war. You know, sometimes you have to fight. That's very pragmatic for this woman who is being presented as the queen bee of high society. You know, I think it's an aspect of Mrs. Astor that her followers don't necessarily appreciate or haven't adopted themselves, right? They, they seem to be all be all end all about high society, whereas Mrs. Astor is high society is is the goal but she understands you have to get your hands dirty a little bit to get there is that an aspect you're picking up on her that maybe her sycophants aren't i appreciate your queen bee reference because i think that that actually gives her credit for the running of things for the actual Mm. manipulation of the hive if you will so while the rest of them are busy just collecting and kind of running around with like this busy work she's actually paying attention to the growth and the movement of what's going on in in the overall scheme of things and so you know there's a there's sort of a misnomer that a queen is someone who just sits up on her throne and everyone runs around 
around doing things for her when in reality, true, wonderful, fantastical queens that are talked about forever are actually strategic, smart, savvy women who make things happen. And that's where I'm like, okay, Mrs. Astor, like, I see you. I see what you're doing. And then I can see this hive of busy bees just kind of running around getting themselves upset about the littlest things. I think it's the distinction between Mrs. Astor is at business versus making busy work where her underlings are doing some things. And, you know, and again, this this is something that you and I have disagreed upon. But this show is to me is very much the business of society versus the business of business. And I think Mrs. Astor straddles that line more than her her worker bees do. Anne Morris and Aurora Fane generally are the business of society or the working of society should take precedence over business. To them, it's more important. I think Mrs. Astor straddles the line. She understands business is business and business has to be done in order for society to move forward. I agree with you. I also I think there's a lot of separation between business and society in the in the majority of the households we're dealing with, like the Morrises and the Fanes. There's a lot of back and forth between the husband and wife. But with Mrs. Astor, she is the end all be all. She's the deciding factor. So she doesn't right. have that push and pull. She is business and society wrapped in one. Right. I mean, which is interesting because she's married to an Astor, right? She's married to William B. or Backhouse. Do you know why he would go by B instead of Backhouse? I just learned this fact a little while ago. His middle, well, back- his middle name was Backhouse. So he's, his name is William Backhouse Astor Jr. Was, it doesn't was, seem like a very flattering middle name. When they got married, she says, it sounds like an outhouse or a name for a privy. So it could just use your middle initial, dear. And that's how queens rule. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And he, he, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, Willie B was not even, he wasn't the oldest Astor. He's actually the second son. So Mrs. Astor carved quite a name for herself in society, considering she had none of the actual given to her opportunities that you would expect. Her husband was not going to inherit the majority of the Astor fortune. That was going to go to uh, Astor Third. So, you know, it's just very interesting kind of thing, the way she took the reins of the Astor name. And it's interesting. You haven't seen her husband yet in the show, right? Aurora is with uh, Charles. Patrick and Anne are often seen together. We haven't seen Mr. Astor bumping around the mansion, you know, asking his wife where his cufflinks are or anything like that. She is industry all unto herself. To close the loop on this, I think those relationships, the husband-wife relationships, play out significantly in this episode. But we're going to be talking about the Aldermen, the Fanes, the Morrises, and the Russells in just a second here. But let's finish some preliminaries, because we had some new faces in this episode. We have Clara Barton is introduced in this episode, played by Linda Emmond. No spoilers, but she's going to be around for at least the next couple of episodes, if not longer. Were you expecting to meet Clara Barton in this series? I was taken back a little bit. <laughs> I was taken back too because I feel like she's one of those few individual women that you learn about as like an elementary school student. You know, you just get you just have these like one individual little names you learn, and she's one of those that I I think everyone is always like, oh wow, what did she do? She's amazing, but you don't get that much, and then you kind of forget about her like later on as you're learning history. So I think it was fantastic that she was here, and I loved to understand the the 
actual lore behind it that she was having such a difficult time because doesn't it seem like nowadays the red cross is like who's opposed to the red cross you know yeah. <laughs> like who are these people so i i loved that they showed like even these things that we have today that we 100 percent take for granted that everyone just thinks they're a wonderful idea were a huge difficult thing to get past and actually make happen so super cool i'd love to learn more about claire barton and i'm glad my my kiddos like i said are watching the show with me and they're learning a lot so what did you think about Clara Barton? And were you surprised that the Red Cross just wasn't like a slam dunk? I was surprised because I knew nothing about the Red Cross, not not history wise. I, I knew Clara Barton, Angel of the Battlefield, came out of the Civil War, was, you know, founded the Red Cross. I knew all that stuff. Like you're saying, like the the bold information you get in a text, in a textbook like the scholastic. entry. Remember right. like when we get like the little scholastic newsletter, like in school and you right. just like read like the little paragraph about her. Right. And like, you know, in the Reconstruction era, the Red Cross was started in the united states the, the united states chapter of the red cross and then they move on kind of thing i i delved into this it's going to be on the facebook group a little bit more some more interesting detail but really interesting just how she got her start i mean she was a teacher then she was working in the patent office at the start of the civil war and then became this nurse to the union troops got a dispensation from abraham lincoln to set up a, a widow's group and then it was only in and then she went abroad and that's where she came across the red cross the international red cross came back 1881 just a year before the series starts founds the red cross in danville new york which more on that in, a, in an episode or two but then you know you know, they're talking about here about the government not get, the federal government not giving them support. They actually wouldn't get their federal charter. The, the United States wouldn't give a federal charter to the Red Cross until 1900. They're still 18 years away from actually getting that recognition from the United States federal government to become the de facto uh, emergency relief agency for the United States. Crazy, crazy. I had no idea. I love the variation on how Clara Barton is a woman in this time making a difference. She's raising money just the same as, say, Mrs. Morris or Mrs. Fain, but how different her approach is, how businesslike, how it doesn't seem like, you know, she's not going to be about the drama of who is donating, you know, like she's just such a, a pragmatist. A, yeah, just a, a, a breath of fresh air in terms of like, I'm not playing these reindeer games. You know, we're here because this is a serious issue and we're not doing this like you were saying in previous episodes. We're not doing this for, for looks. We're not doing this so people can pat us on the back. Like we have real work to be done. Right. And if they're going to delve into a charity and use that as the backdrop for the reindeer games, I think it's a perfect, you know, perfect descriptor of what some of these ladies are doing and how they operate. I, you know, I'm glad that they're going to do the Red Cross because I think we're going to learn a lot about it and and what you were just talking about how she is a pragmatist i'm here to raise money and fundraising would continue to be a struggle of hers for the next 20 years she she ends up leading the red cross for 23 years fundraising is never her strong suit but yeah she she will go you know she's gonna have to make a decision of i don't care where the check is coming from i just care that the check is coming john d rockefeller the rockefellers the the scions of new money you know <laughs> the enemies of mrs astor and the van rines and and everyone else we see in the show, he was one of the four families that donated money for the Red Cross to build their headquarters in Washington. You know, so she again, she wasn't she wasn't playing society's rules. She was playing fundraising rules, you know, so very interesting, very, really, really interesting stuff. 
it, it's great to have that as again having it be a woman yes. so that there's this real like okay what are we talking about when we're saying well they seem to be kind of spinning their wheels like if you're over here planning like a luncheon to discuss your fundraiser versus having Claire Barton be a speaker and stand in the front and it's it's handled so much more I want to say professionally than just like let's all have lunch and talk about a fundraiser like those two things these are very different ways to approach things uh, I want to just correct myself. Uh, what she received from Abraham Lincoln was uh, the permission from him to operate a missing soldier's office to help locate missing troops for their families and friends. It was not necessarily a widow's office uh, from the war. So just a little clarification there. Uh, you know, it's interesting listening to you talk about Clara Barton and the role she's playing here and the use of her as a woman stepping outside of the rules of society she's someone that i'd like to see marion take inspiration from right she's kind of doing the things that marion keeps talking about in all these lunches she says it again in this episode almost like a broken record which i know drives you crazy but again oh again with <laughs> the well i mean she says twice in this episode she brings up why not just ask the people with money to donate money they've got the money you know and she says that even in the red cross planning meeting that seems to be in the same kind of vein or or a, a role model or a mentor that you'd think Marion would look up to is this kind of Clara Barton-esque figure. And, and Clara doesn't seem to be the type of storyline that we're going to be following that is going to be about appropriateness all the time. You mm. know, that's like a huge thing with Marion. Like, is she allowed to be involved in this cause? Is it appropriate? And I think that that's something that it's nice to get away from that feeling and just be like, this is a true need. We And we need to handle this in it like a roll your sleeves up, not like prim and proper concerns kind of way. Another new face we had introduced into this episode, finally, a, a, a face to the name. Uh, Mr. Mm -hmm. Scott, Peggy's father, joins the show. John Douglas Thompson. Uh, some people may know him uh, from his role in Mayor of Easttown. Anyone who is in the theater, that follows theater, like so many of the characters in the show or actors in the show, he is a renowned stage actor. I just found this quote. I felt like I had to say it. Ben Brantley, who is a theater critic for The New York Times, he described Thompson as, quote, one of the most compelling classical stage actors of his generation. Wow. I mean, that's a significant <laughs> thing to put on someone. And, you know, but I think just gives you forewarning of what you would expect from uh, Mr. Scott. What's your first impression of him as he hits the stage finally? Arthur drew me in immediately. He has this look on his face and this this warmth and this like I leaned in like I was like wanting to really hear him and and watch him and just listen to every little part that he was going to be explaining to Peggy. I was like, what is this guy about? And why am I so just like drawn to him? Yeah. So it makes sense to me as a stage actor. I really feel like there's something like larger than life about a stage actor. Because well, playing to the back so of the house. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I felt that way. Like it came through the screen. That doesn't always happen, you know, and there was something about the way that he was projecting himself and his character as like, you need to hear what I'm saying. And this is going to shed a lot of light on Peggy's situation, everything, what our rapport is, the dynamic of the Scott household, you can gain a lot just from just this very small interaction, really. When we started this show, one of the things we said about Peggy and her character, um, you know, we, we have the benefit of screeners. We've seen ahead from what you guys have seen. We knew race was going to become an aspect of her story, which up until this episode really hadn't been discussed about too, too much, not in depth in any kind of way. And, and she also 
had this family life that was very mysterious. Yes, we'd seen her mom, uh, you know, played by Audra McDonald. I believe Dorothy is the name uh, of the character. So we'd seen her briefly, but we it's really a shroud over Peggy's personal life. This episode really starts to pull that back. I think just, uh, yes, we have all the Christian advocate stuff, which we're going to talk about in a second. But just that first meeting when she's standing across from her father on the sidewalk and she has to move out of the way for the white family. Mm-hmm. I mean, just watch. I mean, feel the intensity of of Mr. Scott watching his yeah. daughter have to move out of the way of these two white people. Man, that said, that said so much and was so well done. Just watching that, just the the facial acting, just the body language that he's emoting here, and Peggy too. I mean, she she's having to be subservient to these people that she doesn't even know for no reason other than the color of her skin, like. For a show that hasn't yet really delved into race, I feel like they kind of took the scab off of it and began to delve into it in this episode. I think that Arthur's like bristling was mm. so, uh, you know, palpable. And, and, and they were in the middle of an important family, you know, conversation yes. between the two of them. And yes. it was like, are you kidding me? Like, step around us. Like, you're going to make us have to stop and basically yield to you two because of the color of our skin. And, and you could tell that that was his message across the board with Peggy. This whole, like, you could be the high society within our own world, but you are forcing yourself into this white non sense over here that we're, we're still kowtowing and we don't have to do that. You know, we, we have the money and the status elsewhere. You don't have to do this. You don't need to come in the back door. And I, and I could understand as a parent why that would feel so just frustrating, you know, for all the hard work that I'm sure that, that he and Mrs. Scott have put into their business, which is not revealed to us yet, but we know that he has a business. Um, and that, and how open it is, you guys don't know yet. (laughs) But how open armed he is to, of you know, want to right. share the business with Peggy and and how difficult it is. I have to say, when you talk about face acting, when he says basically like you have this safety net and you can always come work for me, the knitting of her eyebrows. It, it, oh, my God. I it, it was like an arrow through my heart. I was like the feeling of your father acting as if he doesn't necessarily believe in what you yes. are doing in your dreams that like it like ripped her chest open and he was so a dad in that you know she wanted to cut that conversation off short and he's like what happened right. <laughs> you know like what what could possibly have gone wrong here besides i said when you fail you can just come work for me <laughs> and it was like oh poor peggy like that's the worst i love the scene so much because it is dealing with race aspects here i mean he's He's pointing out why go to the Christian Advocate, not the New York Globe. We're going to talk about the Christian Advocate in a, in a bit. And the New York Globe, we're going to talk about more next week because, uh, you know, that's going to come into play again. Both real publications. One was a white magazine. One was a colored person's magazine. They use the words of the time. He's immediately picking up on that. Why would you go to the white person's magazine if you're going to do this writing? And then, by the way, is telling her, you know, no colored woman writer can make a living wage. So handling race aspect aspects of it, but also saying you're my daughter and you're wasting your talent and your ambition on something that's not going to be able to support you. Come work for me, which I think is a very familiar conversation, regardless of race, that fathers often have when they have a business, a family business, often have with their children. You know, this this safety net. Just come home to the safety net. What are you doing? 
Well, and I'll, and I'll add to that, that, that there is something about it that is timeless in terms of the field that she wants to work in is a very, you know, up and down type of job. It is not steady income. You know, being a freelance anything, artist, creative, anything, you know, that is a more difficult way to have your professional life go. It, it is going to be constantly scraping and trying to make a name for yourself. There are other businesses that you can have that are established and are extremely steady. My feel is that Mr. Scott and his family have a steady known quantity of a business. Whereas, you know, whether Peggy wanted to be an actress or a singer or a writer or an an artist, artist, an artist of any any type. Yeah, yeah, all of this. And I would say even in 2020, it's the same thing. 2022. where it's 2020. Sorry. I know we've lost two years. Because... All right. even, in tw- <laughs> even in 2022, when my son comes to me and says, I want to be a writer, a small part of me is like, oh, that's so much harder, you know, to do than getting a degree that is a known profession where there's just like steady income and whatever. There's this fickleness that comes with a creative job that can be, you know, very dejecting as as an individual and you don't want that for your child you know you want them to have a stable career so when i heard him say you know a a woman of color isn't going to be able to make any type of actual living at this i'm thinking we would be concerned about that today with any of our children regardless of color regardless of gender we would be like oh this is such a hard way to make a real living where it's stable all the time, this is difficult. So I, I think that this was a really classic conversation between a parent and a child. And they showed all the nuances. Him saying, I'm here for you. I'm stable. I'm your safety net. And thinking that's how it's coming across. And for Peggy to hear it as, and when you fail, because we all think you're going to fail, then you can just come on home. Right. And what a, what a like heartbreak kind of feel that is. Peggy and Arthur both sold it to me that they have very, very compelling points of view. Now, given the ramp up to this meeting, I, I feel like since since Jump on the show, we have been kind of trained to expect a, a monster yes. uh, to, to come at us the way Peggy has uh, pointedly avoiding avoided going home to Brooklyn, not because of her mother, but very, very, I mean, she has said because of her father and not wanting to no, see him. She says it like this, Mike. She says, I don't want to see him. It's that phraseology for me as a daughter and, and just as a woman where I'm like, oh, he's a villain. He's a real bad guy. And then when the carriage goes by and he's standing there and he looks so like... I don't know, like a grandpa that you would wrap your arms around in a lot of ways. That I was like, clothes were awesome. I I was like, God damn, everything about him, everything. Oh my gosh, you like knocked me back on my heels because this is not the devil. This is a dad. Yeah, we had been scared about this man. What does it? It makes you wonder, though, is there still something more we don't know? Is is her apprehension about her father more than he just doesn't believe in me? Which. No, it's not to say that's not enough. That's the the feeling of my mother or my father or my parents together don't believe in me and my ambitions is enough to turn you off to wanting to go home. I I I lived it personally. I know I try very hard not to be that person for my son. It's it's a thing, right? But it does feel like there's maybe something more that we don't know yet about this relationship. 
Well, definitely the fact that she was in Pennsylvania and she, you know, has sought out Mr. Riggs as a lawyer that worked out of Pennsylvania. We know that there's more that was going on outside of New York City. Um, and so there we know that this mystery that is very layered with Peggy, there's definitely things that her parents have not approved of. And seemingly her dad in particular has stuck his nose into in some way that has ruined things for her, in her opinion. So I, you know, I'm eager to see where this comes out. I mean, can I just like throw out like a prediction? I mean, please, please. Is it too reductive to think that it is about a man? Does that feel like well, don't be going there? Like that's too like it's not just going to be about her falling in love with someone who he doesn't think is an acceptable match and somehow he wrecked it. I thought that before this episode and I'll tell you why. Okay. I thought it was going to be man or or maybe romance relationship as as a possibility. So when Marion and Peggy go to Mr. Rakes's office. This is where they set up uh, Marion and and Tom set up the agreement to meet in Madison Square to look at the Liberty Torch Hand. They're actually there for Peggy to have a meeting with Mr. Rakes. You'll recall he is helping her with this mysterious matter that she has that we don't know anything about. Right when they went to Bethesda Fountain, we ended up following Marion. We didn't get to hear the conversation between Peggy and Mr. Rakes. Now, as Peggy is going into Mr. Mr. Rakes's office in this episode, we hear him say only the beginning as he's closing the door, we hear the beginning of his conversation with her. He says, I've confirmed your suspicions. And then the door closes and it so it's dot 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 trails off. Mm-hmm. I've confirmed your suspicions doesn't sound like romance. I've confirmed your suspicions sounds like business, either some kind of arrangement or some kind of a contract issue or inheritance or money for me it, i've confirmed your suspicion sounds something business and or money related okay i will 100 percent go with that i i don't want it to be something like you know she fell in love with somebody and and you know she somehow had, he had dad... killed or something <laughs> So we covered for 52 Weeks of Christmas, we covered a very old movie that was called It Happened on Fifth. And and in that, there was definitely a moment where a father wants to break apart a relationship. And he does that by offering career options for, for the guy that basically he can't refuse. It wouldn't make any sense. He needs to take it. A single man only to South mm-hmm. America. Right. And so that was where I was kind of feeling a little bit like, well, I mean, there still could have been some sort of offer here. But I like I like your idea better in terms of as soon as Mr. Rakes and God, you know, my ear was like to the television speaker, like, what is he going to say? Is that doors closing? Your suspicions are correct. I mean, all of that was like, what? Like, this is a much bigger mystery, more than just we need to do some sort of paperwork that you need a lawyer for. Like, there's actually detective work going on. But in your letter, you said that you're a secretary. So I am. To a Mrs. Van Prime. But you never mentioned you were... I'm not sure we can see you today. But Mr. Carlton's letter said he wanted to meet. What is it you expect of us? I'd like your editor to publish my short stories. Wasn't that clear? In The Christian Advocate. Really? Is there a rule against publishing the work of people like me? Well, not a rule. I read your magazine a lot. I like your editorials. And I liked a recent article about the importance of equal rights. I want to test it. 
she is the antithesis of Marion in every way possible in, in ways that I love. I love how she presents her arguments. I love how she defends herself. We see it twice in this episode. We'll play both clips. It, this sets the tone of your magazine is all about equal rights. And here you are telling me we don't publish people like you. I'd like to test your your magazine's <laughs> ethos. It's so fucking smart. It's so good. That and and of course, as we move forward through that conversation in the office, her calling them right on the carpet and saying, I'm sorry, the Christian advocate is asking me to lie. Like, I mean, she just has no problem speaking the truth of what is going on. And you're right. It's so refreshing compared to the conversations we have with Marion, which tend to just be questioning. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Questions, but not giving some sort of information that refutes what the person's saying. Like, her, her way of arguing is just to ask a question, but then it just lingers. And most of the time, it seems that the other person can wiggle out of it by just saying something like, you know, let someone else talk or like, that's quite enough. Or like, you're being inappropriate, that kind of thing. Whereas with Peggy, when she says something, it is fact in a way that the other person has to respond and has to say something to refute that. I have a job that requires me to oppose people as part of my de rigor. And there's nothing harder to refute than a logical person who makes well-crafted statements. Peggy is a logical person who makes well-crafted statements. She is smart. She is on the ball. She knows what she wants and she is not afraid to go and get it. The way she handles herself from the time the camera turns to her in this office, in this waiting room, all the way through to her meeting with Mr. Carlton. Let's listen to how that story goes down, which I think, again, given the subject matter, I think she handles herself so well here. We'll start with the story about the little girl who lives by the bay. Now, there are adjustments we'd ask you to make so that your work is more palatable to our readers. Of course. The little colored girl would need to be changed to a poor white child. But why? Our readers will not identify with a colored girl's story of redemption. But you said my stories came back with the strongest recommendations. Were those from white people? Of course. But then wouldn't their reaction be indicative of your readers? Why would you change an integral part of the story? Because it would cost us most of our readership in the South. I don't approve of the system, I can say that. But once gone, those people would not be back. I see. And it goes on. And you know what? She doesn't get up and storm out of the office. Even at that point, she goes on to find out what else is going to be required of her. And he goes on to say that your name is fine. Your name doesn't indicate your anything about you in any kind of significant way, meaning her race. She learns that she basically would have to sign an NDA and never disclose that she is the one responsible for the Peggy Scott column or the Peggy Scott stories. And also being reminded that when you sell your stories to a magazine, they are no longer yours. They are the property of the magazine. Uh, Work for hire. It's the bane of an artist's existence. I understand Mr. Carlton's position here. The system is what it is. Society is what it is. Our readership is in the South and doesn't want to read stories, redemption or otherwise, of little colored girls. You can't dismiss that out of hand as much as you'd want to because it's a business. And he's not in, you know, they're not in the business of crusading 
right? They want to, they need to sell magazines. I'm sympathetic to that. All of that being the same, I'm Team Peggy here. So it's also repugnant to hear being said out loud. And it, it's the kind of thing that should make the hair on your arm stand up. What's your take and how she handled herself here? And as well as Mr. Carlton's, you know, responses to her and, and their interaction. She was extremely professional. She pointed out all of the important aspects of why what he was saying didn't really make any sense at all overall. And and he was, I'm sure, spot on about what would happen with the readership. The tricky part of this that I have asked a bunch of people having watched this episode so many times, I have some people in my life who are authors, as you are, you're a writer. I really wanted to know from someone who was like passionate about their own writing, how do they feel about the idea of being paid well, but you can't be recognized as the actual person who wrote it? What is the most important thing to an author? Is it getting your word out there? Is it getting your stories recognized? Or do you need that personal portion of being recognized as the author? And I got really different responses from some people. It was definitely all over the place in terms of, I don't need personal recognition. I just want my stories out there and I want to get paid to write. So it was it would be okay by me to just simply sell my stories and not be ever recognized to other people who are like, no, I mean, I it's important to me that I am recognized as the creative force behind particular characters or storylines. So for you, I mean, like I said, you're a writer. What do you feel like about this? It, was she? I know she was between a rock and a hard place with this, but how do you feel from just the, a creative aspect of Well, so here's the thing. I have the benefit of not having to rely on making money from writing. And so for me, recognition, my name being attached with a little blurby picture of saying this is me and I wrote this thing is more important because I'm doing it so that I have a voice. If this was the only avenue open to me, it becomes a much harder conversation, you know, and and the the ability to make much, much better money. And that's, I think, why it's an important discussion. What you're raising here is because the Christian advocate, it's not like it's going to be close to what, say, the New York Globe can pay her. It seems like it is a significantly higher amount of money game-changing amount of money may be higher than what she can make and have her name attached to her stories. Not her name. Her name is going to be attached to her stories, but having her identity, uh, who she really is attached to her stories. It's a really, she's in a different position than I am because again, she, she's faced with either going back to the safety net of her father's business or doing this and making money at it. I don't know. I mean, there's a part of me that feels like, If I had to sell a story and not have my name on it, and it was the difference between being able to feed my son, I think maybe I'd probably sell the story. She's in a particularly tricky situation, I feel like, because because it isn't like she has to feed her son or something like that. She has a job as a secretary, and she has a roof over her head, and she is able to do her writing, and it is, it is right now seemingly a pretty good situation. She isn't like over a barrel in terms of, if I don't sell a story this week, I don't eat. It, it's not quite like that. So she has the ability to be more choosy about how this goes down. I am moving myself from what I would do because I'm not someone who's in a creative field. And I think within my own job as an educator, I would never get 
personal recognition for like no one is like you know 30 years old and saying i can read because of caroline daly like you know my name is never going to be attached to the work that i do that's not true and you know that's not true i know for a fact you have had students reach out to you years later and give <laughs> okay, you, but, but that's on I a mean, very personal level that's not like no one's writing an article about it and saying and i'm not like right. publicly recognized on the street you know i'm not it's not gonna be oh oh my god it's that teacher you know like that's never gonna happen for me i have to like not weigh in on how I would feel. And I do think it kind of depends on what type of writer you are and, and what your perspective is. And if you feel like you're, you really need whatever perspective you have to be like a raising awareness on something, then maybe you're like, you know what? The cause is bigger than my name. This needs to be out in the community right now. And it's not so important that I'm the one that wrote it. But I can see it from the flip side of like, yeah, but once you start selling your stories and your name is forever removed from it, then what? You know, what have you done in terms of longevity? You'd always be arguing with people of, of that very first moment that she has with him where he says, did you really write this? You would forever Not a great way be... to start, an, uh, start a conversation. I mean, well, he ends up turning into forever... a compliment, but I mean, but man, could you imagine going into an office and the first thing the person asks you is, you? You wrote this? Did you really write this? That is demoralizing for that to be yeah. the first thing out of someone's mouth. To be honest with you, I, we don't have the benefit of knowing anything about her writing, so we don't know anything about what it sounds the, exceptional. the voice. It does sound like she's incredibly talented. And and so, unfortunately, as a woman, do I feel like uh, I have had someone like be like, wait a minute, you, you're the one who like does that? Yeah, because I think that, you know, it happens every day where you're just automatically like, it can't be you. You're, you can't be the one that's doing this. So there is something to all of that. In addition to race, there's gender at play here. I understood that that he was trying to say, you know, hey, you're getting an opportunity that two white guys down the street aren't getting. And when she shoots back the whole, but they're never going to be in my position, man, I was feeling that so hard of like the whole, you should just be thankful for what you're getting. And it's like, don't even try to act like you're, you're doing some sort of charity work here, you know, like then my writing's better than their writing. And that's why I'm in this position. Like, don't act like that to me. Right. You're not making them sign an NDA that they they don't disclose their Joe Schmo white guy. And the and the readers didn't choose their stories. Right. So whatever. Who cares? You know, you can go say, you know, the horse outside didn't get offered the job either. Who cares? You know, like, why are you comparing me to people who are beneath me talent wise? You know, but I give but at the same time, yes. And, you know, to, to the example of why, depending on your situation, it, it changes. Do you take this offer or not? She does have a job. She does have, you know, Agnes Van Ryan secretary job she is not dependent on feeding her family by selling the story so i think she makes the right decision by walking out i'm happy marion supports her and says you know she made the right decision because this you know you know until peggy sells this story and hopefully sells the story in the way that she wrote it without having to change the the color of her character without having to hide her identity and who she is until she does that it's always going to be in the back of her mind did i do the right thing by walking out of that office and maybe it's it's really important to point out that it was a two-step decision. I mean, it wasn't just having to hide her identity, which is really what I asked you about. But additionally, they were asking her to change fundamental portions of her story that basically erased her personal experience from it. 
And the thrust of the story from the way she's describing it, right? Right. And so in that respect, I could see where, you know, if you brought in a painting and they were like, well, why don't we start by you painting over all of this? Right. And you're like, wait, wait, what? Like, I could see where it's like, okay, this is, this is like two pronged. This isn't even me anymore, right? I'm not, I'm not even in this story anymore. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that, you know, with the number of publications that are available in the United States at this time, and most especially in New York, you know, I'm happy with the decision she made. And I really think she she can do much better than dealing with this office. You know, there was a red flag as soon as he said, we have to make some we have some notes to make it more palatable to our readers. Mm. If, if that didn't send a red flag shivering up your spine, I don't know. I don't know if you were paying attention or not. More palatable to our readers is a giant red flag. But Hey, I think there are a lot of takeaways here. I think a lot of takeaways in this episode about Peggy. The big one for me is she's so well put together for someone her age. Race and gender aside and the challenges that are those are going to present for her that we really get to see for the first time in this episode aside, she's so well composed for such a young person. Really impressive. I really enjoyed it. I we said from the beginning we were excited about her story in in ways that maybe we're not even as excited about Marion's story, just where the characters are starting from. I think this was the first episode that really gave us a taste of Peggy's not only potential, but like this is a living, breathing, well-drawn character. Now you're getting to see her in action. I, I think I think it bode well, really well for her. One hundred percent. I think the biggest compliment I could give the show when it came to Peggy and individually was when I said that I, you know she would be the person I would want to sit down and and have lunch with, or the person who I'd want to be stuck in the wilderness with because she has a great head on her shoulders. She's smart. She's clever. She knows how to like think through situations and problem solve and make difficult decisions. All of those things are someone I would choose as my friend and someone I would want to have a conversation with. She. She just really embodies that even down to I know that that costuming is something that we're going to talk about next week with Kelly O'Hara, who's playing Aurora Fane. And I look forward to her describing a little bit about how the costuming really is like a a signal to us as the audience about what characteristics we're supposed to understand about the characters. There's something about the way that Peggy dresses that, you know, when you said she's so put together, I think she's also so powerful and so decisive. Like she wears these reds and purples and this really like royal type colors to me that just are, they're so saturated. They're so just like she can stand on her own two feet and handle anything. When she's sitting in that waiting room, there is an air and an aura coming off of her that all of the other like older men in that room can't possibly match there's a boss level coming off of her palpable i felt like coming off of her an intensity coming off of her a storm is coming and you have to reckon with me kind of power coming off of her that none of the other three men in that scene sharing the bench with her could could possibly rise to and as an actress, I really feel like there's something about the way that she's playing Peggy. She is able to be that powerful and in no way being off-putting. There's people who can sit there and they almost have like stink lines coming off yes. of them in a, in a like a, boy, I don't want to engage that person. They just seem like ready to bite my head off. She puts off this other competency, ready to listen. She's like she didn't say, I'm not going to change anything about my story. She's like, what are you, what are you talking about? What do we need to do? Uber professional. Yeah, and, yeah. and accepting of information and willing to like take it in process it and then like be extremely 
strong with how she she can like maintain her perspective and that is very hard to do it would be so easy to put your head down and be like you're right sir i should be grateful for this opportunity blah 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 because he was kind of shaming her you know for not accepting the this offer so i mean kudos to her and kudos to the writers for for managing to write a woman that is strong and powerful none of the people in the room have been off put at all by the way that she is and that's very 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 hard to do even when she treats i mean the assistant who comes out in the beginning it made me laugh so hard when he says to her and they're they're talking already for a few minutes and he says to her what would you like us to, what do you expect us to do she says very straightforward she's like i expect you to publish my stories was that not clear right. it was very funny like very kind of pat him on the right. head and like do you know do you need smelling salts do you know where we are this <laughs> well, is an office also, that publishes things so and also like let's not forget your role sir it's actually your boss who sought me out and asked to talk to me so don't act like i just showed up right here i think i'm not cold calling you here right no right. so like back off all very well done very well written and i and i hope that the audience i think they're gonna suck into peggy's story and i know that we got a little bit of of listener feedback of like they didn't feel like we were spending enough time on peggy and i'm i'm hoping that everyone kind of understands now by episode three like we're gonna delve a lot into peggy but her storyline really starts to take up a lot more of the episodes and and gains a lot more momentum moving forward from here right this was the first episode that really gave you other than setting mystery for her this was the first episode that really gives her something to do in a significant way and we knew that was coming and so you know we sit here and talk for 90 minutes two hours there's a lot of going there's a lot going on in this show and so we knew that it was episode three that was really going to start the peggy conversation just before we move off of it i just i would be remiss if i didn't say the christian advocate was an actual real publication published from 1826 it's printed its final issue in 1973 so it was around for a hundred 40 plus years uh, in some form or fashion. It originally was a weekly newspaper published in New York City. It was sponsored the entire time it existed. It was sponsored by the Methodist Episcopal Church through different iterations and different printing offices. It was sometimes monthly, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, sometimes bi-monthly. It had different areas that came out. It was in Chicago. It was in Tennessee, I think, at one point. Uh, But yeah, totally a real magazine that she would have subscribed to, Uh, as is the New York Globe, which her father mentions in this episode which like i said we're going to hear about more in uh, coming weeks what did you think of marion here because marion is an interesting character when it comes to peggy and you made a very good point i think two episodes ago i think in the first episode what will marion do as a friend to peggy because so far it's been very much peggy having to be a friend to marion just as a girlfriend supporting her friend afterwards and and saying you know, you did the right thing. You don't regret your mistake. You know, what they were asking you to do was untenable and you didn't need to take the offer and you did the right thing. Happy with happy with Marion as, as a friend here uh, post Christian Advocate interview. I am. I think that Marion pointed out all the things that she would have, you know, other opportunities. And if someone was that eager to pay her and and was willing to do all these things about, you know, trying to hide her identity and doing all these like they were kind of willing to jump through a lot of hoops. That should be every indicator that the stories are wonderful and are going to be well received. She just needed to wait for that that opening and she was going to shine. So I'm happy that that she went that way. You know, Marion doesn't understand the way of the world. 
like that is definitely something that has been head over the head for the audience is like she just doesn't really know how it works. I don't know if she's a full comfort to Peggy in terms of like you don't really know what I'm giving up and you don't really understand like what is out there for me. But I think that Marion did to the best of her ability and like what she can grasp about what the opportunities will truly be for Peggy. I think that she did a good job. I mean, I think it would have really sucked if she was like, I don't know. I think you should probably go back. Like that would have been like Marion. <laughs> well, now, let me see. I could start by admitting that I'm no great catch socially. Things are improving in that direction. Mr. Rakes? Of course, I have no fortune, but I've got a good job and excellent prospects. There's nothing wrong with being a lawyer in New York. Certainly not, but... Do you hear that? And if it's devotion you need to be sure of, then I can say, hand on heart, there is no man living who cares more for you than I. Let me spend what remains to me of life in the sole cause of making you happy. <laughs> Mr. Rakes, we've only met a handful of times. You see, for me, I knew at once when you came to my office for help that time. I, I could have asked you then, but... Now I'll keep on asking until you say no. Dun, 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 shocker. I mean, <laughs> my dude, too much, too fast. <laughs> what are you doing, Tom Rakes? Or Swoon, is is this every mm. every person's fantasy? Like, to have a man be so pot-committed so early. Since the moment she came to his office in Pennsylvania, he's wanted to marry her? Come on, you're smelling a little bit like Cornelius Eckert the Third to me. <laughs> I was very thrown by this. I was like, "Why are you doing this?" And what you know, mm, I, I know at the very beginning, you and I had a lot of conversation about whether or not Mr. Rakes was, you know, suitable as just being a friend, and and that he was coming to New York City, and was this really going to be fast tracked to be a relationship? And you know, I was really not. I didn't need this. Like, Marianne has so much growing up to do. She has so many things that she needs to experience that no matter what Mr. Rakes is offering, I feel like it's like, it's like way too much and way too soon. I mean, what do you think is happening here between the two of them? Do you just think this is a smelling a meal ticket? I understand where Agnes is coming from. And, and let's play that clip because I think you, you have to have the whole conversation of Agnes's feeling on Tom Rakes and the way I think a lot of the audience will. I think this is going to be one of the storylines that's very polarized. People are either going to be very team Agnes here or very swoony. Uh, what are you doing, Marion? Please you know, say yes to this man. I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of middle ground when it comes to this whole storyline. So let's play Mary uh, Agnes's take on Mr. Ricks. Who sent it? She'll tell us when she's ready. It's from Mr. Rakes. He got the job he was here to interview for, so he's living in New York. And what is that to you? You can't ask me to cut him dead. My dear, should you meet Mr. Rakes in the street, then of course not. But I suggest only that you do not seek him out. He is not fit to be one of your circle. He is not a suitable companion, that is all. Oh, it seems like a great deal to me. I do not wish to marry Mr. Rakes. Then we have no quarrel. But I don't accept that he's not fit to keep me company. Certainly he has behaved like a gentleman to me from our first meeting. I think I should be lucky to be in his company. Oh, Henry, Henry, must you live on in your child? Can you not set her free for pity's sake? But what's wrong with him? He is an adventurer. 
Will you concede nothing to my age and experience, I tell you? He is an adventurer, and I am never wrong. He is an adventurer, and I am never wrong. I mean, <laughs> her track record's pretty good. Listening to her break it down that way, you're never going to be able to marry him, cut bait as much as you can with him. But then you listen to Tom talking about his position, and I liked his self-confidence. I have no social standing, and I have no financial standing right now, but my prospects are excellent on both fronts. I am a lawyer in New York City in the Gilded Age. I'm going to get there. So kind of get in on the ground floor with me now, Marion, because we will skyrocket together. I think that's his pitch. And Agnes is not having any of that because all of that is new money and a front to her. I like his pitch, but as a storyline, as a as a proposal for Marion, no, nah, dog. No, nah, it would completely stunt her character's growth if she was to marry this man now. She hasn't learned. She hasn't lived at all. Well, and once again, going back to the idea of what does Marion bring to the table, they are not George and Bertha. They are not two strategic, hardworking people who are who are going to climb the social ladder together. Marion is not bringing that much to the table. And I don't just mean, you know, in terms of bringing family money or, or anything. Yes, she has some amount of status. That's true, sort of. But other than that, I mean... She doesn't really have these hopes and dreams. She doesn't have these goals. She even even the idea that like, hey, we could climb this world together. She's like, I don't even I'm questioning the ladder like constantly, (laughs) you know, like this ladder is dumb to me. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, it's like, I don't even know that it's like that great of an appeal to her. You know, like you're not really you're not really hitting the button of like what she actually cares about. So what do you think the attraction is then for him? What about Marion? What is Marion bringing to the table? What is Rake seeing in her that is like hubba hubba? I got to lock her down. I can put a (laughs) ring on it. She's very pretty. But beyond that, what's the attraction here? You know, she's unmolded clay. She's a very soft target. She's she is not going to be difficult for him to woo, basically. You know, she's somebody who is brand new to New York City, has a lot of questions. She's brand new to the world. <laughs> right. They already have a little trust bond between the two of them. I mean, he's absolutely the person that she turned to when her whole world was falling apart. Now she's got a little bit of footing and has the ants. And so to that end, it is it is a built-in social status for rakes, you know, to be able to marry into an old money family, you know, despite the fact that money doesn't come with Marion. I mean, I get it. I understand the appeal here. And, and maybe she is of the women that he's dealt with in small town Pennsylvania. Maybe she absolutely knocked him out, you know, over. And, and he is 100% in love with her and maybe loves the fact that she she doesn't know her way around the city. He absolutely uses his little factoids as a way to wow her, right? Like often he's like, let me tell you about this statue. Let me tell you about what's going on over here. And she's always like, oh, you're so clever. You know, like it, it, it works. It works. And all he has to do is read the guidebook a little bit. So other women are going to be much harder to try to win over. So that's, I think, what the appeal is for She her. doesn't even get his Delmonico's joke. No. So, uh, mm. Can I share she a little shouldn't. Can I share a little Del- Delmonico's story with you? Always. So uh, 
Delmonico's has actually played a, a, a part of my podcasting life because it was the restaurant of choice in the Alienist series, uh, which I covered via written recaps and then did a podcast for the second season. The main Delmonico's is down near the near the stock exchange in Manhattan, very lower Manhattan on Beaver Street. And I've been there many times in my career. The second time I was ever at Delmonico's, I had the Caesar salad as I was waiting for my delicious steak. Delmonico's makes a wonderful steak. Ate it down. It was delicious. I was horribly sick the entire rest of the day i had the worst food poisoning of my life because of the delmonico's caesar salad dressing and anchovies and stuff in it it made me violently ill for the rest of the day and and yeah 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 yeah. so i've been back to delmonico since and people are like oh you're gonna have salad i'm like no no i will be passing on the salad (laughs) i will just i will just have the steak thank you very much uh but yeah so delmonico's uh it's been closed since march of 2020 because of the pandemic but allegedly supposed to be opening up again soon so hopefully we'll get back it there. certainly has a huge historical foothold in new york city so for sure go there if you get an opportunity check it out so overall what do you want for this storyline do you want her to say yes i mean she left it all up in the no, air no no i think i, I think i think <laughs> no. the, i think the utility of this storyline and the proposal because it has perplexed the hell out of me so much so fast this guy is he he's like a hallmark movie horror show with his with his his overarching you know themes of love so so fast its utility is setting a standard right knowing that she has this enthusiastic suitor out of the gate sets a field for her where she will have to be aware of how she conducts herself and her prospects and if she doesn't take him up on his offer or remains dangling and doesn't give him an answer one way or another as she does in this episode well he's not going to wait for her by the telephone you know as it were or you know wait for her post to come he is a young man with increasing prospects setting the table this way will spur her into romantic action one way or another in her life it's the only thing i can think of I like that. And I like that they actually offer up sort of a um, a bookend to that storyline when you bring in Aunt Ada and everything going on with her and sort of like a, a missed opportunity in some in her own mind to have married a young man who d- comes back into this situation now. And we have similar words being used about him when it comes to Agnes's ideas. Before we get there, though, and I and I let, let's definitely talk about Cornelius Eckhart the Third. Were you proud of Marion? Because we've we've been a little rough on Marion insofar as a character of her own volition and or her own opinions versus more of an empty vessel that asks a lot of questions. Because I think so far the show has used her as the avatar for the viewers. What's this thing over here? What's this thing over here? And and we're learning about the world through Marion's eyes so much in the show. This is the first time she really goes back at Agnes where she makes the point that, fine, he's not marriage material. I give you that. But he's certainly fit enough to give me company and has never given me reason to not be someone I can't spend time with and take a walk with. Proud of her for this? Or is this making – is this the wrong battle to fight? 
I think there's more to it than she's even saying. I think that he is a holdover from her previous life. He knows where she came from. There's something to all of that that I think that she clings to more than anything else. She doesn't say that, but I feel that, that that he is coming from from her dad's world, from a place where, you know, he still knows things about her and her life there that no one else does. You know, why do I have to give up everything, Aunt Agnes? I'm not going to walk away from who I was. And that includes rakes for me. So I, I can see why she would cling to that when Agnes is just like, please just embrace where you are now and move forward. And it happens a lot. Like she, she continuously, Agnes does, will continuously mention like, why do you have to be like your dad? Why do you have to be bringing this up? Like there's a lot of that. She invokes her father as speaking through her. This is the second or third time she's done. Henry, Henry, set your daughter free. Why do you continue? (laughs) Like she's holding a, like a, like an impromptu seance in the, in the drawing room. Could you see then why though, if you're Marion, why you would want to hang on to Rakes and continue to have conversations with him when he is like your one tether to that old world that is being so crucified by your new world people? Like there's something to it where you're like, he's my like security blanket in a lot of ways. Sure. There's definitely a whoopee factor to it, but there's also a, he's the perfect vehicle for her to rebel against Agnes though, because he has done all of the things that a polite gentleman should do. He has shown up. He's putting in the effort. He's putting in the work to be at least a good companion, if nothing else. Honestly, I'd love to see these two develop a friendship. Uh, not not to make a Downton Abbey comparison here, but Mary, Mary, Mary Crawley, the oldest daughter in the Downton family show, has many romantic suitors that she ends up almost all of having a friendship with, that she is equally in love with them at some point, but then also watching them go and get married because she ultimately rejects them. So she has very platonic slash romantic relationships with several male suitors throughout the run of the show. I would love to see that kind of relationship here, where they don't become a romantic item, but because they are both these Pennsylvania bumpkins that don't know this New York world, I would love to see them have a friendship based on each of them exploring the world of New York and coming of age and coming of knowledge in this world together. I think that would be a really interesting and different twist on what otherwise could be a very tropey kind of will they won't they relationship yeah i think i think you have to have this element of marion that retains the i'm not going to completely give up my old life it it allows for there to be some amount of friction when it comes to embracing this completely new world and it and it gives the basis for asking questions and for her to actually have like a sounding board outside of the ants because there's really you know besides peggy there's very few other people for her to sort of bounce ideas off of in a safe way you know any Anyone else that she talks to, there's going to be blowback, you know, in some way. There's a lot of like, don't let anyone know you talk to this person. Don't let it, you know, a lot of that game where if she can maintain rakes as somebody that, you know, hey, he's my lawyer. Anything that I say to him doesn't get to be played out for everyone else. I I think that that's a huge thing to have in your corner. Shall I tell you what I think, Mr. Eckhart? I think you heard from Mrs. Morris. Ada was still unmarried. And you saw a way to mend your fences. Now, wait a minute. I may be wrong, of course, and your feelings may come from the heart. They do. I've seen her in my mind's eye so many times over the years. Still, I believe I should tell you, my sister has little money of her own. 
And in the joyful event of her marrying, she would be obliged to move out and take care of herself. I'm too old to live with a man. I assure you, you've mistaken my intentions, ma'am. Have I? Then I apologize. Just so you understand that marrying Ada would bring neither income nor a place to live. You see, you never knew why my father turned you down all those years ago. You thought it was your lack of prospects. But you'd been heard boasting in a bar that you were about to marry a meal ticket. You were wrong about that, too. Ah, oh, she's so goddamn good. I love when they just give Baranski room to be Baranski and just, oh, she has such a good voice with Agnes. Uh, you are wrong about that, too. <laughs> what do we think of Cornelius Eckhart III here? Is Agnes being overprotective of Ada, shutting down this prospective love interest uh, that Ada, you know, the sad spinster sister her, is, is going to be denied now? Or did she read the room right and save her sister uh, heartache down the way? If what Agnes says is true, and he really was saying stuff like that in a bar, then, of course, I think this is great older sister protectiveness. I can't question at all, to be honest. He does seem to have some, you know, eye on needing to to figure out what his own life is. He doesn't seem to have a place to stay. He doesn't seem to have any prospects even now. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty questionable about what he's doing. However, I do like that he seems to have some honest feelings for Ada. I mean, when he's like, he kind of like nestles into, into that, her. You think those are all sincere then, given given what Agnes reveals here? Do you think it's a little combination? I think it's a combination because, again, it, he he feels very rakes to me in terms of like, I knew you when. I knew you when you were a little girl. I knew you before all this stuff happened. I knew you to be this type of person, to be an honest person, someone who doesn't forget things. Like, there's something about having that person in your life that knew you when that feels so comforting. And, and again, like somebody who you can trust to go back to and talk to. So I get it. I get what the appeal is completely. And, and Ada is someone who, I don't know, within this circle of people, I, I feel like everyone's very played out for her. Like, who is she going to end up being able to have any type of relationship with unless it's someone who comes in from the outside, right? Who is not a part of their regular social circle currently. I mean, he is a real like possibility for her and, and her little heart is very broken when, you know, when he doesn't stay for tea and, and, and has to step out. I mean, the whole thing really, I mean, my heart hurt for her. Well, let's play devil advocate then, because even if he said the meal ticket thing when he was younger, one, people change, people grow, priorities change. I think it would be unfair to anyone to be held to the standard for words said in an inn 40, 50 years prior, I only at about to turn 44. I don't know that I want anything I said when I was 19 or 20 to be used against me now, one way or another. I, I you know, I would hope to think I've matured and changed and grown. Is Agnes really acting out of Ada's best interest, maybe, and not taking a long view of isn't my sister due some happiness, even if maybe it results in heartache down the road? Allow her to have happiness now. 
Maybe Agnes is acting out of Agnes's own self-interest. We learn in this episode, Ada moved in some 10 years ago when Mr. Van Ryn died. So they've lived together, just the two of them and their household staff. No, no Marion, no Peggy. Perhaps it's Agnes who's really doesn't want to be alone and, and is is giving this meal ticket send off more for her own benefits than for Ada's. What do you think about that? She does seem to be down on everybody's prospects, right? Like if she's not interested in Marion's and she's not interested in Oscar's and she's not interested in Ada's, that does start a pattern of like, boy, you don't really think anybody should move on or do anything. Right. I mean, he's a, I mean, Ann Morris is his niece. And Ann Morris is an accepted part of society. Whatever her family background is, I'm sure, I'm sure comes from some Mayflower family, you know, down the way. And he's a Pennsylvanian, just like the Brookses. Um, so there's some pedigree there. Clearly not a lot of money, if any, but there is pedigree in Cornelius Eckhart III, aka Mr. Noodle. <laughs> I was waiting to say, Mr. Noodle. <laughs> Bill Irwin here. Those of you who love a little Sesame Street Elmo action, that's Mr. Noodle. You know, watching this a couple of times, I do think there's an aspect here where Agnes is very protective of her sister because she's very sweet to her after he stor- after he is essentially thrown out. She lets Ada pick the menu, which for Agnes seems like a very generous, sweet thing. But I feel like maybe she's acting more out of her own self-interest and circling her own heart wagons than maybe what is best for Ada here because Ada is so sad and this is the first time people have paid attention to her you can see it when he's flattering her at the at the Red Cross luncheon the way he's just so clumsy and and fumbling for words after Clara Barton's first the luncheon talk that she gives I don't know I feel like Ada needs a little love in her life she's so sad seeming <laughs> I definitely think that that the way that he leans into her and they kind of have these little they're not secret moments but they're like intimate little little conversations where they're like oh that's not the Ada I know like that kind of thing that she to have someone bolster her that way and feel like you know yeah that yeah I am I am smart I don't like you know forget things or whatever that is a threat to Agnes's control with Ada as well control agnes's watchword control yeah agnes is interesting because there's times when she has been very generous and very open-minded to like what makes sense to help other people but you know she's so quick to shut down any idea of like you're not moving in here and ps8 i'm not giving you any of my money i'm not going to do this i'm not going to do that and you can't have any of mine and it, that it's like it's silly like you have this huge staff you have a huge home who cares if they were like sort of dating or having some sort of courtship who is it really bothering Bothering, but you're right. Like, I mean, it when you inject anybody in, whether it's Rakes or Eckhart, you invite unsolicited opinions into your home and, and somebody else having some control over your family members. And that's not Agnes's jam, you know? She's not interested in information that goes against her personal beliefs. New York is a collection of villages, my dear. We know the people who live in our own village. But not the ones who don't. The Russells live in your village, Mama. I could throw a stone from here and break their windows. Don't tease me. I'm not. I'm stating facts. I'm not concerned with facts. Not if they interfere with my beliefs. I give you prejudice in a nutshell. No, stop talking to yourself and ring the bell. I'm going up to change. I doubt it, Mama. I'd say you will come down again without having changed at all. Oh, Oscar, you scamp. (laughs) 
teasing the listeners at this point. We're That's at okay. 81 <laughs> minutes and we haven't talked about the major thing yet. But, uh, you know, Oscar is a scamp. Man, he is a complicated character. I like Blake Ritson so much. I, the actor, he sells this guy so much, but he is the most oil, Oscar Van Ryan is the most oily salesman character, I think, on the show. I don't know if I like him or if I despise him. And I don't know if this episode helped me decide that anymore. What do you think about how he is so forward with Gladys in this episode, getting himself invited to dinner, and and his whole way of dealing with John, John Adams' grandson, his lover, and the way he talks to him and talks in front of him? I think that Oscar is playing the game, and Agnes would be kind of proud <laughs> if she really understood all that he was doing. He gets how the ladder works. He understands the parts of the dance everybody needs to play. And I think he does a, a great job of making John understand that, you know, you're important to me, but many people before us had to make these decisions. And this is why I chose this particular woman to be our beard um, and why she works out. Three qualities that Gladys embodies makes her perfect. She's got lots of money. She's innocent. And so she won't have any cause to question his relationship with John. And she seems nice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't after the comment about Agnes married a man that you would not want to be alone in the room with people being kind to one another actually really matters because there's plenty of people who when you just have the money portion they don't have to be nice you know they know what they're bringing to the table and it does not have to be kindness in any form or fashion i you've already kind of expressed to our listeners that you aren't really for oscar because of all of his rib nudging ways of winking into the camera and all that stuff is he actually growing on you a little bit no i mean i like him you know i like him in certain moments and i appreciate he knows who he is and what's what he wants you know I, there's an interesting conversation between him and john it's the second time that they speak he confesses to john that the perfect plan has perfectly fallen apart because of at that moment what oscar sees as the ruin of george russell and john says to him uh, so the girl was not perfect enough to survive her father's ruin oscar doesn't apologize doesn't apologize to john or to anyone to himself about the fact that he needs more money he knows what his life requires he knows the van ryan fortune whatever he's going to inherit from his mother is not enough to make it in this society at the level with which he he wishes to compete. He needs an infusion of cash. You know, he is so forlorn. I mean, he's taking a drink and he's he's just muttering to himself, she was perfect. <laughs> she was perfect. It's an interesting relationship because John and Adams, presumably someone who doesn't ever have to worry about money, but does have to worry about his heart and the secret that he is keeping, seems very down on all of this perfect girl talk. He seems very turned off this side of Oscar. I think Oscar's not hiding who he is. Even when they're in bed, he says, you know, nothing for you to worry about, honey, except for if it turns out that I actually do like her kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> that was so bad. I was like, right, mean? But, but, but this seems like who Oscar is always, right? This doesn't seem yes. like he's like new or doing something new. I feel like this, this show is we're just joining in a progress of Gladys Russell is just the latest perfect girl he has tried to corner the market on. We definitely had a conversation previous to this about Oscar can see Gladys as the perfect girl, but I really highly doubted that Bertha was going to see Oscar as mm -hmm. a really great, you know, match. I just don't think that he brings enough money or or status or anything to the table compared to what Bertha thinks Gladys 
could get. Bold capital in our notes. Caroline agrees. <laughs> this idea that Bertha Russell, you know, says Oscar needs much more money than he has to offer if he wants to woo Gladys. Uh, really interesting take because you you were you called it perfectly. You know, Oscar thinks he's kind of hot shit, and you know, Gladys may be an easy mark, and Gladys may be an easy mark, right? She seems to have this uh, infatuation with this Archie Baldwin, who we don't meet in this episode, but we may wink, wink, meet in a future episode, whose claim to fame is is had an ancestor who maybe came over on the mayflower uh you know i like her nanny her her prison guard says at the beginning of the episode if everyone who says they came over on the mayflower actually came on the mayflower you know it would have been, been the largest ship ever kind of thing yes. um and and that her funny right very funny and her because that wasn't something that i like realized that people went around like kind of lying or fibbing about in some way that 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 like made me laugh that i was like oh man that's like what a, what a dig man well in this in this in this old money society you've got to be able to trace your back your roots back to the 17th century at the very least the 18th century but 17th century gets you into the old money society you know you have to have a dutch name or a or a, a pilgrim name to really be in with these people archie baldwin is had a relative who was with washington at yorktown that's kind of the family claim to fame that guy's not gonna check the mark for bertha and george either it was really interesting through oscar we learned some interesting van ryan family history they are a banking family they were a founding family of this uh they call in this uh, in the show united manhattan trust in 1797 uh there is an ancestor here arnold van rhine who among with others uh started this banking company and they've been involved in banking ever since kind of setting oscar on this career path whether he'd like it or not i love that world building uh there's actually a really nice uh, parallel in real life called the Manhattan Company. Uh, it was actually founded by Aaron Burr. Uh, again, there'll be more information on the Facebook group about this. Aaron Burr founded this Manhattan Company as a challenger to Alexander Hamilton's Bank of New York. It was started as more of a several different areas business, but he always had the idea that it would have a banking component to it. And it turned in, it was founded in 1799. If you look at the founders involved in it, it's all of these old world families. There are Van Rensleers. There are Stuyvesants. You know, no Morgans, no Vanderbilts in these families. These are old world New York families that started the Manhattan Company. So I think that's what the show is drawing on here for this United Manhattan Company comparison. That's new information we didn't know about the Van Rines. So if this guy with that kind of pedigree isn't enough for Bertha, Archie Baldwin certainly is not <laughs> going to be enough for Bertha. I like that. I like that very much. I like the little nugget that we got out of Agnes that that they actually built like so much further down the avenue there. And that's why they ended up with like this real estate holdings that that actually proved to be very, I believe she said it was very practical or something. Mr. Like that. Van Ryan bought a lot of up avenue uh, parcels mm -hmm. before it was fashionable. They built the house that they live in now in 1850, well before it was fashionable to live so high up on Fifth Avenue. You know, real trend centers, the Van Ryan's, you know, uh, maybe not a great guy to live with maybe a real bastard but seemed like he had his hand on the tiller of good business yeah he understood real estate so good on them man and so now we do understand where their money comes from and and where their where their little fortune lies in terms of real estate and banking so very good world building i agree with you i think oscar makes a fatal error the same fatal error that the aldermen make he underestimates george russell Maybe more importantly, he underestimates George Russell's wealth. 
I think I think we have teased the listeners long enough. I think we need to get to George Russell and his version of retribution for making a fool of him and making a fool of his wife. On the outset, let's ask some big questions here. Does George go too far in taking a pound of flesh from the alderman? Part two, is George Russell responsible uh, for Patrick Morris taking his own life at the end of this episode? I do not think that he goes too far with the alderman. I think that what they were doing was they were completely willing to ruin his fortune and ruin his family. No, I don't I don't think that he needs to be uh, feeling bad about that at all. When it comes to what makes the difference between the Russells and, say, the Morrises, the Russells have the attitude that they can make and spend a fortune again. They have no doubt in their ability to rebuild. So the idea of of becoming ruined in some way is, is not nearly as horrible to Bertha or George because they feel like they are strong enough, smart enough, and have the skill set and the talent to be able to rebuild again. Whereas when you have someone like Patrick Morris, for him, it's it's all like sand through his fingertips, you know, like it's just it's all going away. And he doesn't have the wherewithal to say, well, I, I'm a smart man. I can rebuild my fortune. This is possible for me to do. That is where I draw the line between like they just have very different outlooks on life and their ability to believe in themselves and be able to rebuild what they had. So I don't think that that George or Bertha are responsible for what happened to to the Morse family. It's just a very different way of believing in yourself. I agree with you. And I think you're hitting on an important distinction between George and Bertha versus all of the other couples that we've seen. The Charles and Aurora Fane and uh, Patrick and uh, Anne Morris family. Patrick and Anne don't work together for Patrick and his money and his career. Patrick is an alderman who does his alderman things. Anne is a socialite who does her socialite things and never the twain shall meet. And it seems Aurora and Charles are the same way. Bertha and George are wrapped up together. The first time she says, you'll made you made a fortune once you can make it again the next time she says it she changes it a little she says we made and spent a fortune once we can make and spend a fortune again they are a unit they are a unit in business as well as society they use the one to help fuel the other they are not separate entities and i think your roots are always stronger if you can blend them together versus two skinny trees that are blowing in the wind independent and not not relying on each other i want to play this clip because i i labeled this clip marriage goals and I, I would hope any successful partnership, marriage or otherwise, would have this kind of bond together. I blame myself. My guard was down. Can't you fight it? Not in court. It's not illegal. There must be other ways. If I do, I will have to put a large part of our capital at risk. Very well. You understand what I'm saying? All this may be lost. You've made it once. You can make it again if you have to. There are moments, my dear, when you are quite marvelous. Useless, each without the other. Useless, each without the other. Man! 
Turner doesn't have a fucking chance, I hope. I mean... <laughs> yeah, I'm very sick of Mrs. Turner. She can bite it. Even with these two... I mean, they have sexy times in this scene. Yeah, I, We haven't seen anyone have sex in this show. I mean, yay! Go for they you have guys! Passion. You know, they have passion for life. A passion for each other. Passion for the game, you know, of what they're doing. And there's something about that that feels so electrified. The, the visual that I get when I think about these different families is that we have, you know, George and Bertha who are, I think of them as like, like American Ninja Warriors, right? Like they're going through the course and, but they've never won before. So they're just like running as fast as they can and they'll get knocked down and they just like get back up and start over again. And they're willing to do that. There's still like some sense of it's fine. I'm, I'm willing to continuously try and it's fine to get knocked down. However, once you become top of the heap, there is a terror in your heart about being knocked down because you're not so sure you're strong enough or have the wherewithal to make it through that course again and actually get back up to the top. It's okay because they've not made it yet. They can have several runs at the mountain and it be no big deal. You know, they just are resilient. But if you're at the top and you fall, well... That's a different story. So I get it. I get that they have a very different attitude about their their experience. However, I man, I would choose Bertha and George's relationship every day of my life because resilience and grit is everything to me. That is the only thing I would want you to have in any type of relationship because that whether whether again it's a business partnership or a romantic partnership and what i would want to instill in my own children obstacles are always going to happen and these this alderman the way that they play with their money rely on power to to take down other people it's a dirty game what they're doing and and shame on them for not having some humility to realize that you can be taken down by your own game too you know none of these other couples are having this kind of conversation in open dialogue and transparency with each other. Can I tell you one of the things I love the most about the George and Bertha interaction in this episode? Please. It's that he doesn't just go and do it. He just doesn't he doesn't go and just start buying back his shares, putting the family wealth and fortune at risk. He tells her and asks her. He gets her permission. He explains it. He says it's risky. He he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't downplay it. He says all of this. Please understand what I'm proposing could cost us all of this. And he doesn't do it once. He does it twice. He runs it by her twice, as he should. This is not a decision to be made unilaterally. No matter what age, whether it's 1882 or 2022, the, the thing he's talking about doing here is something you have to be on board with as a couple. And he runs it by her twice before putting it into effect. I fucking love that. I love that because that respects her. It respects their relationship and their marriage. It demonstrates so clearly these two have a united front bond that the others don't. And it acknowledges the impact on her life that he has, which no other relationship is doing. They, No one is acknowledging the impact that they're having on their spouse, whether it's business to social or social to business. No one is giving the respect that George and Bertha give to each other about how the moves they make are impacting one another. And I, I want to point out that they have Bertha being the one reading the newspaper and being so business savvy – 
mm-hmm. that she brings it to him and says, hey, did you see this? This seems like it's going to impact our deal. When you think about Anne or Aurora, do you, could you even imagine them reading anything in the business section of the newspaper and bringing it to their husbands and questioning business decisions? Like, that is never going to happen, you know? No. And so, you know, Bertha is in it. And she is just as in it as George. And I really admire the respect between the two of them. If you needed any more, just just going directly to your point, is the conversation that Bertha has with Anne. And she has to school her on the basics. And Anne says, oh, I understand how the stock market works. But she clearly doesn't. The, the information Bertha is dropping so knowledgeably and casually is information like Anne does not... I am convinced does not understand the nuance and the specifics of the stock market and and what has happened here, which warrants going into a little bit. And then I do want to understand. I do want to spend a little bit of time without giving a financial, you know, uh, how securities law, how securities and short selling works without going into the minutia of it. I do want to talk about that a little bit. The scene right before we cut to Bertha and Ann Morris. George comes home when church takes George's coat at the door and says, where's Mrs. Russell? She says he she's in the parlor or wherever the library with Mrs. Morris. Should I interrupt them? George doesn't need to. He knows his wife has got it. They are, if you guys watch wrestling or or the Olympics are going on now with with uh, relay events, the relay events, team events only work if you can have seamless transition between the people on the team. George doesn't need to go in and prep Bertha with how to treat Anne Morris. He doesn't need to give her lessons or cue cards. He knows she's got it. He can seamlessly hand her the baton and let her go. He doesn't need to check in. No one else, no other couple on the show has that kind of relationship. And then that allows you to have this scene between Bertha and Anne. You have neatly encapsulated the nature of dealing in stock. You try to guess which way they'll go. If you're right, you make money, and if you get it wrong, you don't. Well, of course I know that. So what is it you want me to do? I want you to ask him to show a little pity. To show mercy. Forgive me, but this is in payment for what? I don't understand. You come into my house, you make this strange request, and I'm trying to establish why. Do you feel I owe a debt of gratitude? Have you granted me a favor that merits a return? No. No. (laughs) Mrs. Morris, I hesitate to teach the basics, but life is like a bank account. You cannot write a check without first making a deposit. School is in session, bitch. <laughs> get your coat and get the fuck out. I love it. My favorite scene in the episode. It was tremendous. I think that this was one of those scenes where Bertha showed her worth. You know, she was able to, you know, I've said so many times, what does this person bring to the table? Bertha brings it all, man. And she has no problem. She relishes in staring down Ann Morris and being like, are you kidding me right now? And and shame on Ann Morris for being so dismissive of this family and never, ever considering 
well, maybe I should have deposited some goodwill into the situation. Like there was really no reason to be such a jerk this entire time. It was just to be, uh, you know, uh, exclusionary. You have to be so confident in your standing in the world to be able to act that way, to be able to act like you'll never need your back scratched. You better be so certain as to where you stand. And that's where you know, Patrick's choices of being so pretty bold and risky in the decisions that he was making with their money. She didn't have any touch base with him to understand how risky, you know, he was playing things. And the fact that he had done this kind of stuff before, lack of communication made her feel like she she was just, you know, standing on granite when in reality she was standing on quicksand this whole time, you know, and you know, take it, take your punishment. <laughs> Lit guys, listen to that clip again. Watch, watch the whole scene again. Pay attention to where Bertha asks and answers her own question from, to Amor. She says, "This isn't repayment to what? What kindness have you done me? Have you done me a kindness that needs to be repaid for?" And as Anne is is giving a whimpering no. Bertha assertively says on top of her, "No, it's so fucking good." Carrie Coon just owns the scene uh, so well. I want to I want to contrast because you said it so perfectly, and we've been talking about the difference in relationships. We have played clips so far of Bertha and George showing the united front team that they are in their conversations with each other, as well as in how they are tackling these sons of bitches who are trying to take them down. That's how a good team is doing it. Let's listen to the Fanes. Let's drop in on the Fanes and the Morrises because this is how they're scrambling to to end the bleeding that they're suffering. We're going to listen to two clips here back to back. First, the fiends. Why couldn't you see it coming? Because it's always worked before. Then why isn't it working this time? Russell has more money than God. Can't you tell him there'll be no profit in the deal? We tried to make a fool of him. He won't find that easy to forgive. You should get changed. If he keeps going, I'll lose everything I own. We, we will lose everything we own. It's a pity you and Anne Morris decided to humiliate his wife. I guess that won't have helped. That was Anne, not me. I wanted to use their ballroom for the fair. Then why didn't you insist? There must be something you can do. Appeal to his better nature. Important to note there, again, Aurora sticking to her guns that it was Anne driving the bus. This is something we've talked about in all the episodes. Anne saying it was Aurora... And then Aurora saying in a much more believable way every time it was Anne snubbing Bertha. Interesting because of how it plays out. Let's listen to the Morrises, though, and then contrast how these guys operate versus the uh, versus the Russells. Could you go to him? After the insults you heaped on his wife? I don't think so. I only did you what only I... only did what you thought was right. I had to follow Aurora's don't lead. Don't insult my intelligence. I don't know what you mean. You saw the fun he had destroying your bazaar. Well, now he has the chance to destroy your family. Can't be as bad as that. You have to go to Mrs. Russell. Ask her forgiveness. Crawl, grovel, kiss her feet. Do what you have to do to get her to stop him. Patrick... You can't ask that of me. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Or you'll have no position, no house, and no one left to boss around. No one left to boss around. <laughs> she doesn't get it. It's over. Uh, There's no high society life left for you. We are 
done. You need this is what you need to do. I'm not asking you. I am telling you. Right. <laughs> That's a good impression. It's fucking intense. It's intense because they don't understand. Bertha and George are talking about it. This what I have to do to fix this may cost us everything. Honey, you did it once. We can do it again together. We've spent We've built and spent fortune before. We can do it again. We are a united team. Then you get these jokers. None of the husbands taking responsibility for trying to fuck George, which was the inciting event here. George makes it very clear (laughs) that he brings in the insult to his wife, but that's really just the whipped cream and cherry and delicious uh, hot fudge on the Sunday. Y'all tried to fuck him financially and, and, and his railroad bill. You guys did it. And in none of these clips is it, we tried to fuck him and we're taking responsibility for that. But then also what the added insult that you did to his wife is the only way to fix this. Interesting, because even still at this, not until the end of the episode, not until it has become dire for them, do the aldermen say, we will repass the bill. Had Morris, had Patrick just said in that opening scene, when he gets summoned to, to George's office, if he said, you know what, you know what, I'm don't, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to call your bluff. We're going to repass the law. I realize that I am scared of you. I talk to Thornburn, who is now an alcoholic, you know, crying in his Ohio, Sandusky, Ohio <laughs> uh, railroad tracks. I understand who you are. We will not fuck with you. Sorry, sorry, sorry for our impertinence. If he had just been like that, none of this happens. And Patrick Morris is still alive at the end of this episode. The husband's not taking any responsibility. Yes, their wives are are bitches who have had knives out for Bertha, but the husbands did dirty here too, and they are really the inciting cause that they t- never take responsibility for. They have no humility. They've done this so many times before. You know, they screwed other people over like this. Carl says that. It's always worked before. It's always worked before. When I say, you know, they've always been taking these risks. They've always been screwing people over. They shouldn't have this complex of like, we're we're upholding the way we do things. You know, like, no, no. Your husbands are dirty in the way that they handle things. Y'all just act over here like you're like spotless. But that's not the way this works. And... You know, if you didn't think it was going to come back to haunt you, shame. Let's jump to the end here because there's an important aspect of this whole thing that I am curious about whether or not George handles it right or whether George is right to handle it this way. Let's play. This is where the aldermen now have come and the noises you're going to hear is the sniveling snot coming out of Patrick Morris's no sniveling he's doing while he's begging on his knees. We've already lost enough to make us poor. But if it goes on for much longer... There's some among us facing ruin. Please, end it. I won't say I feel no pity, because I do. But you have not only tried to get the better of me, you and Mrs. Morris have snubbed and belittled my wife. How could I allow that to go unpunished? I don't suggest that you men committed every crime that I'm avenging here, but to employ a modern phrase, I'm afraid you must face the music. I do like Face the Music, and I love that the show keeps using important phrases as the title of its episodes. I'm very into all of that. Is George right to bring the insult to his wife into this business discussion? 
because he, I think, would be very much justified to stand only on you tried to bring me to financial ruin at the expense of my company. You tried to become more rich, even more rich than I already made you, motherfuckers, uh, by giving you insider information last week. Uh, you you tried to financially ruin me and take more from me and ruin my railroad. That's enough probably to justify what he's doing here. Does it undercut his morality argument by bringing in Bertha or is it all fair game for him? All fair game. Uh, Bertha and George are a unit. I think it would actually undermine his authenticity to their marriage and to their partnership if he didn't bring up and, you know, BT dubs, you also screw over my partner every opportunity you guys get. So, yeah, I have I've extra added incentive here to, to put the screws to you. And I think that they need to understand that the Russells are a unit. You You cannot snub my wife and have me treat you better in business. Like that's not going to happen. And and in in the rest of their households, they don't care. They don't, they, again, they don't spend any time paying attention to the impact of the things that they do on their wives or their wives impact on their lives. They don't care. Maybe to, to an outsider, it would be like, why are you bringing up what goes on, you know, behind the scenes? Well, because George and Bertha are one unit together, they are rising the ranks together. So no, he's not going to put up with you being rude and shitty to my wife. And then, you know, also being horrible guys in business, you're going to pay for both of these indiscretions think about that clip and i don't think i got it in the clip i cut here but go back and watch a scene where Anne goes to bertha's uh house and does a very poor job of groveling uh and you know and has it's almost laughable when she says to ask for some pity and ask for some mercy because she's so fucking insincere even in the scene and why because she doesn't still understand the ruin that she is in even in that final scene where where patrick so sadly says his goodbyes to her without mm-hmm. her realizing he's saying her goodbye his goodbyes to her and saying how proud he is of her and how much he loves her she has no fucking idea no. Uh, still still and so when she goes and says well you know my husband and the alderman they've miscalculated and blah 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 and bertha's like bitch you have no idea what you're even talking about i've talked to my husband i understand what you guys did i read the paper you passed the bill and then you repealed the bill you fucked us like all the this ballroom don't come cheap and you're trying to attack that i understand that you have no idea you're just a puppet it's just now your husband's hand up your ass controlling your mouth instead of mrs astor's he's being jim henson she has no idea what the stakes are at this point and that's so sad and it's so pathetic i i am not gonna lose any sleep over being team george here let's Let's talk about what happened here. There's a clip that explains it, but then I want to add just a little bit of context, just in case people aren't like, I understand why this is such a big deal. Let's jump to the beginning of the episode where George and has summoned Patrick to the office and is explaining essentially what short selling is, what we would call today short selling. What are you trying to tell me? There's no need to talk as if I were your chauffeur. When I've finished, you'll wish you were my chauffeur. You summoned me here. You came. Because if you had not, I would have turned up at your place of business and shouted the truth to anyone who'd listen. That the aldermen are liars, and you have reneged on your deal. I've come to your office at your request to show goodwill, Mr. Russell. I will not stay and be insulted. But I agree. It is time you knew public opinion has moved away from your position. In other words, 
You all bought shares on margin, passed the law, and made a fat profit. Now I imagine you've sold them short, and you mean to cancel your own law, betting that the value will plummet. Then you'll buy them again when they hit rock bottom, and in the process, double or triple your ill-gotten gains. That is pure speculation. I love that. I love the and I cut it there because it that is pure speculation. Yes, that's exactly what you did. It's, that's actually what speculation is. <laughs> You know, his moment there of saying, like, I'm not going to stay here if you're going to insult me. That so is echoed in Anne's, like, tittering laughter <laughs> at Bertha. <laughs> yeah. Like, the that attitude that the two of them maintain, you know, in their own bizarro way, they're a united front of just being ignorant. It's such... <laughs> you know? I, yeah, I I love cutthroat business. I, I love stories of cutthroat business. I love days where I get to do cutthroat business. I, I, whatever. I, it's my adrenaline and I enjoy it. Watching people not understand what their cards are in their hand is so delicious to watch to me because when it all comes undone, it is... You and I talk about karma a lot, and I couldn't help but think about the bad karma the Morrises in particular have generated in the world and the way it came just roosting home at their very fancy house tonight. I, I it, Was this not the poster child for good and bad karma in the world, Caroline? Uh, yeah, 1000%. I mean, and in, in every aspect of their life, they're dirty in business and they're dirty in the way they handle their personal affairs. So yeah, I mean, they, they deserve what's coming to them. It is only, and, and anyone who is angry at the Russells for what Patrick Morris ultimately does at the end of this episode, they dug their own grave. Literally, they made these decisions in order to screw over someone else. And when it didn't work out, they didn't have the grit and the resilience to say, we love each other. We can stick together. We still are married. We have our children. We can still do. I mean, he he literally just gave up. So I, there's nothing about what's going on with Mr. Morris here that I have a whole lot of sympathy for. Okay, so let's just under let's break down. There's two things that happened here that the alderman did. When Russell Consolidated Trust stock prior to the railroad law being announced, it's going to be at let's say it's going to be at a low price per share. Okay, George gave through Patrick gave all of the aldermen a tip essentially by the stock of my company. Open up a margin account. A margin account is basically where you go to your stockbroker and they lend you either money or stock. All of the aldermen would have borrowed money on their margin account to buy lots of shares of Russell Consolidated Trust. Let's say they bought it at $10 a share. The bill gets announced all of a sudden, now Russell Consolidated Trust stock is worth a lot of money. It's going to go up because, man, this guy is going to get a railroad built. Everyone wants to be in the George Russell business. The stock price goes up. Now, when you borrow money or you borrow shares from your broker's margin account, you have to repay that. So the aldermen are going to sell some amount of shares and pay back their stockbrokers. That's how they because it's that's how you have to you have to give the money back or the stock back that you borrowed. So you bought low, you sold high, you made a nice sum of money. Even when you repay your broker, great. That's how insider that's how insider trading works. I have information that's not public yet, so I can buy when the stock price is low, sell when the stock price is high. Everything in between the difference of those prices, that's my profit. Great. And George is okay with that because it gets him the railroad bill passed. The problem comes for the aldermen 
And this is where they get greedy. This is why I don't feel bad for any of the aldermen, because they made a ton of money off of the insider information. Fine. Take it. It's it's legal at this point, if not unethical. By repealing the law, what the what the aldermen are doing basically is short selling. Here's short selling in a nut in a nutshell. They're borrowing shares of Russell Consolidated stock because they're anticipating the stock price to plummet. So again, using their margin account, they go to their stockbroker and they say, listen, I own a thousand shares of Russell Consolidated Trust. Blend me another thousand shares of Russell Consolidated stock. And they're going to sell it at that high price. So they're going to sell their two, they're going to sell their thousand borrowed shares, right? They made it, it's, it's, it's at a peak price because they have to replace those shares, right? But the idea is the stock price is going to plummet. So what I sold at $20 a share, they're expecting to be like a dollar a share because when that bill gets repealed, now everyone's going to be like, oh, we're out of the George Russell game. But now we don't want anything to do with this guy's stock. So by repealing the law, it's going to plummet the value of his stock. So when the price gets back down to a dollar, they have to go back and rebuy the shares and give back their broker the shares that they borrowed. But now it's the opposite of trading on insider information. You made a ton of money by selling selling borrowed shares at a high price. Now you go buy and you go rebuy the shares at a low price and give back the borrowed shares. The problem with short selling is when you're anticipating the stock price to tumble, but then it goes up. And in this case, goes up astronomically because George is inflating the price of his stock by buying all of the shares he can. Supply and demand determines the price of a share. The more people are buying shares, any stock, the higher the price is going to be. That's how capitalism works, supply and demand. So... The Alderman and Patrick Morris in particular, they have so much exposure. They have borrowed so much shares of this company that they have to give back. You have to replace the banks. The banks are going to come a calling. It's, it's called a margin call. The banks say, Hey, you borrowed a thousand shares. We need them back. He was planning on getting it for bargain basement prices. Now, because George is buying back all of his company's shares, the price is astronomically high. Literally, we'll take every dollar Morris has and and almost all of the dollars that all of the aldermen have to repurchase these shares, if they even have that much money. I mean, they're talking being poor versus financial ruin. We're talking beyond bankruptcy. But like being buried in potters, a uh, potter's field because they won't be able to afford a headstone for you. If we're talking that level of poverty. That's what George has done by inflating his stock price by buying all of the private shares. That's what the aldermen's did by playing this very dangerous game. By, right. Not anticipating that George wouldn't be able to inflate for any length of time his stock price. Eventually it would come crashing back down and then they would be able to go rebuy the shares. Again, these guys don't know. It's the same mistake Oscar makes. They don't understand George. They don't understand the vastness of his wealth and his commitment to not getting fucked by them. Yeah, it was a game of chicken that they lost. It was a game of chicken that they lost. That is the best way to do it. But why why the financial ruin is because Patrick will never, ever, ever be able to afford 
the money he would have to spend to repurchase all of the shares that he borrowed in anticipation of being able to short sell it and make a huge profit. So they made a lot of money, then got greedy, and now they paid the price for it. Shame on them, you guys. Shame on them. Shame on them, but it really takes the morality out of it. it it's, it's indefensible to really say, well, have pity on the aldermen. Why? Why? Because they were trying to ruin George. If George didn't take this, take this act, his family's worth, the value of the company, the reason short selling works is because that stock would have been worthless. All of the stock of Russell Consolidated Company, which in a private company is the family's value, would have been nothing. It would have not been worth the paper it was printed on, the stock certificates were printed on. So someone here is getting fucked into financial ruin. It's either George and Bertha when they plummet the stock by repealing the law, or it's the aldermen who made money on George's largesse and insider trading information and then tried to make more money. I don't know. That seems doubly sinful to me. Yeah, they're greedy is the word. They were doing really risky moves and they just were not acknowledging how they were acting and what the the consequences were going to be for their own families they i mean honestly except for morris why weren't the rest of them on their knees you know like they didn't go as because they didn't go in as hard they made that's they, what i mean though but right. like they they mitigated their risk better you know and so it's like what, what are you gonna do you're the one that was it was going head first you know and you can't be angry at the rest of them for not being as impacted when you're the one that acted so boldly like that's on you this is business in a nutshell watch watch the scene again with the aldermen including charles fane you know pr- presumably patrick's best friend the the disgust and oh, they can't, the uncomfortable they like, can't even i mean it's it, men always have trouble when other men cry right but this is such a level of they can't even make eye contact with him almost there's only one there's one background actor who's kind of staring at him but all the other ones are are looking at their feet they're looking out the window they can't even look at him they're so they're so put off by this snobbling snot-ridden groveling he's doing to to no end i mean george is not going to release their windpipes until they give him what he wants which leads us to the end scene where you have bertha and george catching up on the day intercut with patrick loading a gun and shooting his brains out and blood splattering all over his family photos let's listen to this clip that i've called the right thing is this just for me? It is. I'm a lucky fellow. How's it all going? They've offered to repass the law and let me build my station. So I won't have to scrub floors? Doesn't look like it. Is it finished then? Not quite, but almost. It'll be a long time before the aldermen try to get the better of me again. But I think I've punished them enough. That sounds very forbearing of you. I like to do the right thing. If I don't lose any money by it. I mean, this is the same lesson he taught Thornburn, but it's actually on a more grand, the the stakes were even more than it was for Thornburn. I mean, literally this cost someone their life, but George, very consistent character. I'm going to make a lesson of you and no one will ever try to repeat this with me again. People will talk about Patrick Morris's brains in his study for ages before anyone tries to fuck with me again this way. 
To be fair, again, they have done this before to other people. So if he didn't act so definitively, if he didn't have this level of consequence for the alderman, it would just be a matter of time before they did it again to him. There's there's no reason to have mercy in this situation. Guys, we have gone super long. I just want to touch on a couple of cleanup things before we let you go for the night. Uh, before we leave the Russell house, we have to talk about Miss Turner. She takes a moment to Oof. to pull uh, George aside and, and, and very, very come hitherly tell him that we're all very much on your side. So, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. so I'm, I'm mentioning it only to book to bookmark it. We're not done with Turner. She she tells uh, Mrs. Bruce down in the downstairs uh, that she's got her sights set on something better than a broken down valet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that because Miss Bruce un- misinterprets Mr. Watson giving Turner eyes for him having thing uh, a, 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 a thing for her. I think Mr. Watson is just keeping an eye on Turner because he doesn't trust her. But uh, this is uh, Miss Turner. We're not done with her yet. We're not done with Putting her. Trying a pin to- in her right on our bulletin board, along with Jack and Bridget. I want to put a pin in them because I want to talk about them next week about what's going on with them and what's going on with the with the sort of recreational side of the staff and. Dating and whatnot, and what's going to go on with them? I put a pin in Jack and Bridget. I do love a good Magic Lantern show. I love when that train's coming right at us. It's coming at us! Oh my god! Yeah, so I love I love a good Magic Lantern show showing us the train coming off the screen. We got to talk about Larry Russell real quickly. I don't understand what we're doing with this character. I thought he was going to be such a young thrust character with him and Marion. We're three episodes in, Carolyn. I don't understand what we're doing with this guy. We're wasting him. I I would dare I dare say I'm worried we're starting to waste Larry. He's sitting here making potato farming jokes at his that mother's was odd. expense. Very odd. Very You're, odd. The the Kerry County, you know, that's an Ireland joke that they're his ancestor potato farms. Bro, you're burning yourself as well as your mother. And also, I wouldn't say that to Bertha Russell. I would be worried that she would stab me in the fucking throat. I'm kind of surprised she doesn't like slap faces. Like, she definitely seems like a severe lady in that in regard. In front of a guest. Not, yeah, that's not, not even cool. just that's not even just family. Oscar mm-hmm. Van Ryan's there and you're going to make a potato farming joke? Very weird. I don't know what we're doing with Larry here. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think that we have to burn through rakes before we can get to Larry when it comes to Marion. So I think we have to I think we have to keep our powder dry on on that still happening. I think there's still more information that we need, but we did get some information on Mrs. Chamberlain. Tainted. That was the word used by Agnes. Her money is tainted. That Well, it turns out that they knew each other. They knew each other before they were married. And of course, Silly Marion has to be like, well, don't most people know each other? I was like, oh, Except Marian. for some Eastern European countries. Marian. No, no, they knew, knew each, each other. other. In a biblical sense, for goodness uh, sake. How come Ada just had to say in a biblical sense? Even Marion, I think, would have understood it there. But so her crime seems to be child a child that she claims is adopted was done out of wedlock to Mr. Chamberlain. But is that the full story? No, I think that there's more to this. I think there's more to it, too. I'm looking forward to it. I want to put Mrs. Chamberlain on our board to be discussed next week as well. Uh, I I think that is all of the board pinning that we need to just call you guys attention to there's a reason why we're not going into it now but let's put it on our uh red red string conspiracy board for for a future (laughs) episode to discuss 
This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you guys so much for listening to New Money Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you want mine, head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to, listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, but especially at Apple and Spotify Podcasts, if you could leave us a five-star rating for the on the uh, old feed because it helps uh, promotion of the show. It helps us get visibility in those podcast players. And you know what? It's the right thing to do, and it doesn't cost you any money. And don't we always want to do the right thing as long as it doesn't cost us any money? I think so. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.